Hello and welcome to the Family Planning Files, a podcast from the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning. The National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning is one of the training centers funded through the Office of Population Affairs to provide programming to enhance the knowledge of Title X and other family planning staff. I'm your host, Katherine Acheson. In today's podcast, we'll be discussing the new ASCCP Risk Management Consensus Guidelines for Abnormal Cervical Cancer Screening Tests and going into the field to learn about the process of implementing them in clinics today. Our two guests today are Colleen Jones, MSN, WHNPBC, and Rachel Guy, MSN, FNP. Colleen earned her MSN from the Frontier School of Nursing, where she graduated with honors, and her BSN from the Deaconess College of Nursing. She has 30 years of nursing experience, and for the past 10 years, has worked as a board-certified women's health nurse practitioner at the Family Health Care Center in St. Louis, Missouri. Rachel earned her Master's of Science from Pace University and her undergraduate BA from SUNY at Buffalo, where she graduated with honors. She has been a nurse practitioner since 1983, specializing in reproductive health. She became a certified colposcopist in 2006 and is currently the director of colposcopy for Planned Parenthood of Northern New England, based in Vermont. Welcome, Colleen and Rachel. We're so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. So just to start with, Colleen, what are some of the big changes in the guidelines from previous guidance from the ASCCP? Unlike the 2012 ASCCP guidelines that relied on test results based on algorithms, the new guidelines follow a risk-based approach to determine the need for surveillance, colposcopy, or treatment. The guidelines, in addition, now recommend consideration of a patient's screening history along with current test results to guide decision-making. I heard you use the term risk-based. Rachel, what does that really mean in this context? This is a fundamental difference from the previous guidelines where we just used algorithms that were very much sort of one size fits all in the past. And as Colleen just mentioned, the new application and guidelines use age, clinical scenario, current results, and most recent past history to determine a patient's immediate risk of severe dysplasia or worse. So it bases it on a worst case scenario at the bare minimum of CIN3, which is also called severe dysplasia. Or another way of looking at it is we're looking at their five-year risk of developing severe dysplasia or worse. If the immediate risk is greater than 4% of CIN3, then the patient will need a colposcopy or possibly treatment. Those with an immediate risk of CIN3 of 60 or higher should proceed directly to expedited treatment. And that's a change also in these new guidelines where there are now guidelines for someone going directly to treatment and not necessarily having colposcopy first. And that depends on what the severity of the risk is. If a patient's immediate risk is 4% or less of severe dysplasia, then they can return to surveillance within a one, three, or five-year interval, depending on the five-year risk of developing severe dysplasia. Those with a less than 0.15% risk of developing severe dysplasia or worse over the next five years are considered very low risk and can repeat their screening in five years. So that allows us to have confidence in this interval of five years. And the nice thing about these new guidelines is that they are designed to incorporate new evidence-based results as they come out so that they can be modified as we get no information. The ASCCP reports that as more data are gathered and other risk factors are able to be identified and validated as statistically significant for changing a person's risk threshold, for example, unvaccinated persons, this may be added in future algorithms of the app. 
That's a really good intro into our next question about the risk factors. So what do these guidelines mean for women who have risk factors or, say, a family history of gynecological cancers, Kali? So typically, as far as family history is concerned, there was a time that if mothers took a medication called stilbestrol during pregnancy to avoid preterm labor, this was actually considered a risk factor for the daughters of these women to potentially have abnormal pap smears in their future. This drug has not been used in a number of years for this. So I think probably that's not something that we come upon, or it's not a question that we routinely ask any longer. So actually, the risk factors are all basically related to the HPV virus. In addition to test results, CIN3, our worse than that risk, was considered for a number of individual risk factors such as screening history, age, and immunosuppression. One of the most important updates to the guidelines is recognition of the importance of previous HPV test results. New abnormal screening tests after a negative HPV test within the previous five years indicate a new as opposed to persistent HPV infection. These patients have half the CIN3 plus risk of patients with unknown previous test results and can be safely triaged to surveillance rather than immediate colposcopy. As the HPV vaccination rate does increase, population prevalence of the CIN3 is expected to decrease. Therefore, the risk estimates in the table supplied by these guidelines may change allowing the guidelines to adapt by matching the revised risk estimates with the fixed clinical thresholds. There are more specific instructions for patients that are immunosuppressed in the main research article for the ASCCP guidelines. And the guidelines refer to shared decision-making and treatment options, especially in regards to current pregnancy or future pregnancy. Rachel, can you tell us what are the factors that go into that? Yes, absolutely. So that's not a new concept as far as the previous guidelines that we were working under always recommended shared decision-making for future childbearing. The difference is that the terminology in the old guidelines used the term young women and really was kind of skewed towards having this conversation for people, you know, in their 20s. And the guidelines have shifted that language to, to really encourage the provider and the patient to have a conversation with the patient about their future pregnancy plans, which isn't limited by age. So that's refreshing change in the language and removing out the young women terminology. The evidence on risk for preterm labor is complicated by data that indicate untreated cervical dysplasia alone also confers some risk for preterm labor. And we know that that's a small concern as well for treatment. So you are weighing risk and benefit with people. And it's very important for an individual to make that decision for themselves You give them the knowledge, what is my risk of this progressing and what is my risk for preterm labor? And that's where the shared decision-making comes in. Additionally, we know that significant percentages, up to 50% of women with CIN2, will spontaneously regress over the first 12 months. And I find in my practice that oftentimes people have their minds actually very much made up about, no, I don't want to wait and be concerned about this. I want to go to treatment or no, I'm very keen on following this over time. And, you know, you have to respect both of those decisions. You just give them the information, the science that we know, and, you know, let people make those decisions for themselves. And what we do if someone doesn't go to treatment right now, and this is what we've been doing for years anyway, there is 
there's a standard of care for following someone more closely that's choosing not to go to treatment right now. We will follow them more closely every six months for up to two years and look for, is it progressing? Is it getting worse? Is it staying the same? And keep revisiting that conversation with people. And I'm a colposcopist and I've definitely had people that, you know, one year into it, they were like, you know, I really think I just want to get this treated now. So they can change their mind at any time. But this is the standard of care. And I think it's very patient-centered and very science-based. So to change tack a little bit from the contents of the guidelines, we're going to talk a bit more about experiences instituting them in both your clinical settings. Both your clinics have recently instituted the guidelines in clinical practice. What helped you get buy-in from leaders and clinicians to get this started? Colleen, if you want to go first. Yes. My collaborator at the center that I work at, it's a community health center. It's a federally qualified health center in St. Louis. We deal with a very vulnerable group of patients. And so my collaborator, who's also the only OBGYN that works at our center, just recently actually instituted these guidelines to everyone at our community-based health center. He reviewed the highlights, you know, of these guidelines at, we have monthly women's, if you will, women's health meetings We were actually given a copy of the guidelines. I think a lot of us had already been reading about it, but we just recently started this. And he basically, the buy-in was pretty easy because we pretty much follow current ACOG guidelines anyway. And in the way we practice, we understand the importance of a risk-based approach to care for patients and how this will probably mean less invasive procedures for patients, which for patients, this is huge because they certainly get very upset about those types of things. Yes, they want to feel like something has been taken care of and is gone. But as far as having procedures, they would like to not have to do that if they don't have to. And, you know, they are a little bit confusing. I think that as we're getting used to using these guidelines, our OBGYN is extremely available to all of us. And if we have a case that we're trying to figure out if she's going to need colposcopy or if she's going to need just a repeat pap smear in a year, or if she can go to three years and we're not entirely sure that he is going to be accepting of that, we just run it by him which he's very open to doing that as we continue to just get started with these. I personally do not do colposcopies. None of our nurse practitioners where I work do colposcopies, but our OBGYN does the bulk of them. So we want him to be okay with us not scheduling with him if it's not needed. And what about you, Rachel? What about your experiences? Yeah, thank you. And thanks for that. It's really interesting to see how different practices have rolled this out. It has been a huge undertaking for us. And we thought, why not just do this in the middle of a pandemic? But we knew this was coming down the pike. The medical director of Planned Parenthood of Northern New England and myself attended in Atlanta in April of 2019. We attended the ASCCP national meeting and where this was introduced. And the medical director and I, Dr. Donna Burkett, we just were so excited to bring this back. And we loved that it was risk-based. And we loved that people that might not need colposcopies were going to be, you know, not having to do that. So we brought them back 
in terms of introducing this to our clinicians in 2019. We sort of set the stage, and I'm the director of colposcopy at Planned Parenthood of Northern New England. So I wrote up the information about it. I said, this is coming down the pike. This is the direction we want to go in. And then we avidly awaited the rollout of the app and the guidelines, and that took a while. And then we did a couple things. We created a PowerPoint presentation for all of our clinicians, what all the changes were. We have paid all of our clinicians for the cost of the app, which is about $10 Mm -hmm. on their smartphones. And the other thing that all of the Planned Parenthood is that we practice under a very specific set of protocols called the medical standards and guidelines. So we couldn't just do this without the go-ahead from Planned Parenthood Federation of America. So we, ahead of um, changing our protocols, we got a waiver from PPFA who hadn't changed them in mass, you know, for all of the affiliates, but they agreed to let us go ahead. And my colleague, Kate Stormfield, who's also a colposcopist and our director of clinical care services, she and I collaborated on redoing our entire chapter for the cervical cancer screening and the management guidelines. And it dovetailed really beautifully with the ACS guidelines for screening, which I know that's not the topic of this, but there was new screening guidelines for cervical cancer screening that came out this year. So we just revamped the whole chapter and ran it by PPFA and they gave their blessing to it. And that was part of the PowerPoint presentation that we gave to our clinicians. So that's kind of a long-winded answer in that it's been this long sort of, in many ways, a very slow rollout from early 2019 when we first sort of learned about it and sort of like kept saying, the guidelines are coming. So by the time they came, people were like, oh, this is great. You know, this this is evidence-based practice and this is in the best interest of our patients. And that kind of brings us into our next question, what some of the challenges have been in instituting these guidelines. Obviously, we've had a very interesting past year with COVID and the pandemic. And if that has had an influence at all, as well as just general challenges that come along with changing clinical guidance. Uh, Rachel, would you like to tell us? Sure. So, you know, first of all, you have to have access to a smartphone to use the app if you're going to, well, it's easiest to do that. There is now a web-based app that's available. So that took a little while to roll out. I'm pretty sure that the bulk of our clinicians, I can safely say, are using the app on their smartphone. I think it's probably just a little more nimble. So we definitely had to make sure that people had facility with that. Part of the training presentation that we did with our clinicians was practice on their phones. We would give case scenarios and people would practice. And then we would say, okay, what did you come up with as a result? So that was the first one. We also found that transitioning patients and follow-up from the old guidelines to the new guidelines, there aren't enough scenarios built into the app for that. So there are places in the app where it will take you to this point of saying use clinical judgment. And so I think that's fair. We have to use clinical judgment all the time as clinicians. And to that end, myself and my colleague, Kate Stormfield, we have offered our expertise because we are colposcopists and we really immersed ourselves in these guidelines. And we attended also the ASCCP conference that was done virtually this year. So we're very versed in it. And so we have offered our expertise to all of our clinicians throughout our free state affiliate. And we get, I get consulted almost on a daily basis. And, you know, some of them are colposcopists and many of them are just, you know, they've gotten back a result and they're not sure what to say for a plan. 
And that feels like a really critical part of this is that we have done this very robust work for our clinicians in helping them to gain confidence in the plans that they're making. And, you know, just knowing that we're still giving the best care to our patients and not letting anyone sort of fall through the crack. I think one thing I want to add that we discovered is that we didn't feel like there was good guidance as well on the underscreened population or never screened population. So we kind of developed some guidelines in collaboration again with PPFA. We said there just isn't good guidance here with someone who hasn't been screened ever. And then another thing that we wanted to be mindful of was a concern that came out. This is in terms of the equity and health disparity piece. There was a concern that was voiced by the Black Women's Health Initiative of concern about are these guidelines addressing people in different demographics? And if you look deep into the literature on the ACS guidelines and the ASCCP guidelines, there really is a look at different demographics. So the answer would be, you know, people feel that that was addressed, but there's still a concern that in an underscreen population or a never screen population, particularly people of color, that we might want to be very mindful of the infrequent screening that can happen in certain populations. So to that end, we have just tweaked that a little bit so that we feel like we have addressed possible disparity there that still hasn't been looked at probably as well as it should be and probably will be, hopefully will be in the future. And what about for you, Colleen? What have some of the challenges been for you in St. Louis? Right. I would say what the challenges are is pretty much because of the delay of instituting these guidelines because of the COVID. We have a number of patients that we are still catching up on their wellness care, if you will, and they're slowly coming back into the center for their annuals and that type of thing, or even follow up from abnormal previous pap smears. And for us, it's really a bit early to know if we're going to come up with a lot of challenges because we're still working through through these guidelines, if you will, are behind on him. And we're still trying to totally make sense of everything and to feel comfortable with them. So we are so used to using algorithms. And, you know, this whole risk-based approach is just different and almost have to get like a new thinking cap on, if you will. So I think that given time, maybe in six months, we will be in a much better place, maybe a little closer where Rachel is. Evidence-based practice marches on in the middle of a pandemic, and we want to do the best that we can to serve our patients. You know, I think in in terms of the question about overcoming the challenges, I probably address some of that in terms of how we really have been supporting our clinicians and providing opportunities for them to consult every time a scenario comes up that they're not clear about. The other thing that we had to revamp in addition to the protocol and also helping our clinicians understand the difference between algorithms and what the ASCCP calls figures. So it's really a terminology thing, but that can throw people that are just used to the term algorithm, which at our affiliate, we're used to the term algorithm. So they call it figures in the app. It's really essentially the same thing. Those figures are also a little bit more condensed, consolidated than the algorithms that our staff is used to. And in the old ASCCP guidelines, you know, so there is some of that. But the other thing that we did that was amazing major revamping is our follow-up system within our electronic health record. 
And we had to create just new pathways for sort of like what the follow-up was going to look like. What were we going to call those plans? And we changed our follow-up instead of where it had previously been outcome-based, like LSIL, PAP, you know, co-testing in a year. And that was the name of the plan. We changed it to align with the follow-up recommendation. So follow-up in one year, follow-up in three years, follow-up in five years. That was the brilliant brainchild. This is a shout out to Kate Stormfield, who is my colleague, who is a whiz and really oversees this part of our EHR. She said we could simplify our follow-up plans down to about 18 or 20 versus like 50 or something, you know. So that was a really lovely transition, but that certainly took some thinking and it's still, it's a work in progress. We've been doing this since September. So that's still been something that people are getting used to, but it really has simplified the process. Something I'd like to revisit, Colleen, in terms of your challenges, you mentioned the pandemic has delayed that regular well woman care or people coming in for that follow-up. How have you and your coworkers kind of been working through that and addressing that in your clinic? When the pandemic actually started, we really reduced hours. We did a lot of our visits, if you will, virtually at home. And we found a lot of the clinicians at our providers where I work are, you know, they're family medicine doctors. A lot of them are nurse practitioners that do family medicine. Those of us that do women's health are kind of a small subset. We do OB there, of course, as well. Pediatrics, behavioral health, mental health. We do a lot of, you know, obviously everything that would be involved with community health. And a lot of these specialties have done well with virtual appointments. Unfortunately, I discovered early on that for women's health, if you're going to really do really, really good care to examine, you can't really give great care to women over a virtual appointment. I mean, it was extremely important. So I have to say that they probably brought me back and I probably do the bulk of women's health of everyone there. Um, but they brought me back a lot faster, added days, that type of thing, because the patients were piling up. So for me, that was a big part of getting people back to care. And some women I have found that have suddenly come out of the woodwork and want to have exams. It's very interesting to me. And other people that have been regulars, I'm not necessarily seeing them. And I think as the pandemic, as it improves, as more and more people are immunized, I think people that I have yet to see through this whole process will come. Of course, those that are having issues, you know, they're going to make it their business to get in. And, you know, we do quite a thorough like, screening process at our center before people can come in. We also have COVID testing there at certain days. So there are so many dimensions to care at a community health center that have allowed us to continue care in a very safe way. Well, we've had a really great conversation this afternoon. Unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time. But before we go, for both of you, what are some of your favorite resources that you You've found recently for clinicians and other family planning staff who are looking to learn more or implement the new guidelines in their setting. Uh, Rachel? Yeah, I think starting with the ASCCP website is a great place to start. They have webinars that you can attend. They have educational offerings. The articles, the publications that the ASCCP guidelines are based on, I would recommend even just reading those and understanding the science behind what went into them. And then, of course, looking at the app itself and getting familiar with how those guidelines differ from the 2012 guidelines. What about for you, Colleen? 
what have you found out? So that's sort of how I've begun my learning. Of course, there was the whole packet that we got initially from the ASCCP, which was somewhat complicated to just do on a quick read. But I also looked at ACOG's version of this and some of the tips that they had, which was a little bit helpful. But I think truly, if you get on their website, as Rachel said, they have a quick start program. You can go through and put in the steps, you know, which is basically pretty much just putting all the information about the patient without their name, of course, but like their age within a certain bracket, what their current pap smear says, some of the previous pap smears uh, say, and it'll pretty much tell you based on percentages, as Rachel said, on what the plan should be. And some of those that I'm not 100% sure that I'm comfortable with what the approach was, I will run those by my OBGYN and say, you know, is this what you want to do? Because ultimately, the person that is doing the colposcopy and that part of their care has to feel comfortable with, you know, the decision that you as a clinician are making with that patient. And, you know, I hate for a patient to come in and see the OBGYN for this colposcopy and get them, you know, worried about this procedure and that type of thing, worried about what this might mean with the end result that he decides that maybe they don't need it. You know, it it seems like a lot of trauma to put a patient through. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today, Colleen and Rachel, and for sharing your time and expertise. For more episodes, search for the Family Planning Files podcast or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For a transcript of this podcast, as well as other online learning activities and continuing education opportunities, please visit our website at www.ctcfp.org. You can also follow the National Clinical Training Center for Family Planning social media on Twitter at NCTCFP and sign up for our monthly newsletter, Clinical Connections, on our website. This training is supported by DHHS grant number 5 FPTPA 006029-03-00. The contents of this podcast solely represent the views of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the official positions of the Department of Health and Human Services or DHHS, Office of the Assistant Secretary of Health or OASA, or the Office of Population Affairs or OPA. No official support or endorsement of DHHS HHS, OASH, and or OPA, where the opinions described in this podcast is intended or should be inferred. Theme music written by Dan Jones and performed by Dan Jones and the Squids. Other production support provided by the Collaborative to Advance Health Services at the University of Missouri-Kansas City School of Nursing and Health Studies. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us next time for another episode of the Family Planning Files.